Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Susan Glucark. We'll be talking about her multifaceted life, writing and recording music, and much more as we get her unique perspective about the Canadian music scene. As described in the Canadian Encyclopedia, Susan Glucark is a Juno Award-winning Inuk singer and songwriter. Her blend of country, world music, and easy-listening pop is distinguished by her gentle voice, upbeat melodies, and inspirational lyrics sung in English and Inukitut. I hope I pronounced that correctly. That's over really the past, close. <laughs> over the past 30 years, her music has become an essential part of the Canadian music landscape. So thanks for joining me today, Susan. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Well, good. Well, I'm looking forward to this interview because I hope to learn a few things. And I'm going to ask you some questions, of course, about music and just about your other experiences as well. So uh, so really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so born in Churchill, Manitoba. Yes. Way, way up north. Yes. Yeah. And uh, did you live there for long? No, actually. And in fact, uh, born there because that was the closest hospital. So actually, my parents, uh, my mother is originally from Arviet, and we were living in Arviet when she was due. And she was flown to Churchill to the hospital there where I was born. And then we went right back to Arviet after that. Okay, so that, that explains it. And, and you were one of seven kids. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, I have four sisters and two brothers. Wow. And, and your dad was a Pentecostal minister up there? We both are. My father, yes, they both were. My father has passed, uh, but both my father and my mother uh, are, are yeah. were Pentecostal ministers. Interesting. So from a small... Now, maybe I can ask you right up front. I, I'm a bit confused about the terminology, like um, Inuit and Inuk, and and some of the uh, First Nations or the Indigenous language that's used that's acceptable. Now, could you correct me on that or educate me on that? Yep. So for Inuit, so there are three dis- distinct Indigenous groups. Uh, Inuit is one. I am Inuk. And we occupy what we call Inuit Nunangat, the arc- parts of the Arctic. Uh, the First Nations uh, also part- partly occupy uh, parts of the Arctic, uh, but they're more northern provinces and so on. And then the Métis, so three distinct uh, Indigenous groups. Inuit, of which I am. Yeah. Um, Inuit, I-N-U-I-T, is the name of our group, but it's also the word that encompasses more than three um, three in a group. So three would be considered Inuit. Uh, Inuk, I-N-U-K, with the K at the end, is one person, one Inuk. Inuk, I-N-U-U-K, are two in a group, two in one group, Inuk. Um, it's also very important to make sure that you say the K when referring to the Inuit from the Arctic because we also have a First Nations group called the Innu, I-N-N-U, which sounds very similar to Inuk, uh, and that's where some right. people get confused. So, yeah, a bit of uh, a bit of uh, Inuktitut language there. Oh, okay, well, I appreciate that because... Um... You know, me and most of my friends, I mean, I'm I'm a middle-aged uh, Caucasian guy from, I was born in Guelph, just outside of Toronto, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm respectful. I just don't know. I think a lot of people are in my boat, you know, that mm-hmm. there's different words and different interpretations and different understandings that are just lost on, on probably most people, I would mm-hmm. say, certainly in my group. So so I'm always happy to learn and, and to understand that better. And so 
So then the word Eskimo, why was that uh, seen as a disparaging term and why was that eliminated? Um, well, it, and it's also very important to understand that um, it isn't uh, necessarily disparaging to all Inuit. So there were there was there was a group and I was one of them to a degree. I don't I don't have a problem with the word Eskimo. Um, Eskimo is obviously an Algonquin word. It's not, uh, our, um, it's not the word that we selected for ourselves. This was part of the issue for, for some of us. Um, but uh, where I chose a side when the time came, um, which was a side of not using Eskimo, was because when we talk about reconciling and healing, and especially healing where this term is concerned, um, there were stories, and there are uh, horrific stories about um, the the, uh, the the connection between the word Eskimo and some situations uh, of some of those from the previous generation who went to residential school. So um, when I heard those stories, I of course um, I I have to pick the side of healing, and if that means uh, they don't want to hear the word Eskimo, then that's what we do. Um, you know, so that that was that's that's what happened for me uh, with the term Eskimo. Okay, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and sorry, we're going to talk about music, but I I just thought <laughs> you know having having the opportunity to ask you, I I have a few First Nations friends, and I've had frank discussions and just asked them because I love absolutely them. my friends. You know, absolutely, so, yeah. Um, so were you in favor of the Edmonton Eskimos changing their name? Do you think that was a good thing? Um. I was and I wasn't, you know, and I, you know, I, I was very proud of the Inuit, uh, us having uh, our word Eskimo on a sports team. Hmm. Um, but again, given the history for some uh, of the usage of the word, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's a tough situation to be in. So I, I, for that one, I was okay either way. Okay. And I, and I must say I'm a little ambivalent myself because I never had an issue with the word, but I've heard it used in disparaging ways mm -hmm. a number of times, especially when I was growing up. So, you know, it was a 50, 50 thing for me too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm going to ask you more about that, but I, I know we want to talk about music, but I appreciate the opportunity. And, and if I can sort of circle back to that and ask you about it some more when we, when we get past a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. I, I would appreciate that yeah, as well. Absolutely. Okay. So you were kind of an accidental musician, I guess, right? I mean, you sang in the choir at church and I guess every, you know, every, every kid sings, right? If we all just sort of sing and try, and then you weren't really chasing a rock star dream or, or trying to be a, a professional musician. Is that correct? That's correct. And actually, Dan, um, there was no choir at church. Um, okay. I, I think, I think um, in the early interviews, um, when we say we grew up in church, the assumption is always, oh, well, then there must have been a choir. So we'll just put that in there. Right. Actually, church for us in our environments, our northern environments is very, very different from church in, in southern Canada. There were no okay. choirs. I don't read or write music. Uh, we had Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, Wednesday night, and youth gatherings on Friday night. Um, aside from that, um, I, I had no experience whatsoever when I went from my yeah. day job to headlining. There was nothing in between. So, um, I, I, which is why um, when somebody said, well, you sound like an accidental artist, I feel like I am. <laughs> You know, I was given this incredible opportunity, yeah. um, and then it was just a lot of 
learning and catching up for the first few years of the career. Okay. Interesting because, you know, myself, I've been a career entertainer for more than 40 years, but, you know, we all had band early bands and we tried to record and we had accompanying musicians and played with our buddies and we went out there and did gigs and learned how to set up PA gear and stuff. And that, that's the, I think the norm, right? That's what, what we all sort of did. Mm -hmm. And then I was reading your timeline and your history and, and and it wasn't that. Not at all. No, I mean we, we had we had no space to to do any of that, and we talk about you know the the situations a lot of our communities and reserves are in. There really, literally, is no space to do any of this kind of exploring. So there was mm-hmm. none of that growing up. Yeah, and then so your your happenstance was it uh, was CBC, and you were singing. How did that happen? That you ended up getting to record with CBC. Um, yeah, so um, I moved to Ottawa in the early fall of 1990, and shortly mm-hmm. after that was this conversation with my then boss about, um, I wrote poetry and, and diary um, writing, and so uh, part of my job was giving Inuit history lessons to high schools in the general Ottawa area. So I asked him if I could incorporate a poem about living between two worlds to finish high school. It was a poem called Searching. Um, this became um, a bigger conversation around uh, why don't we think about this becoming sort of a documentary, short little documentary piece about that. And this became a piece of music, uh, which became a music video that got on much, uh, much music. And I, I had no, mm. yeah, I had no album. <laughs> I had no songs recorded. I had nothing. And then there was this music video <laughs> that gets wow. heavy rotation on much music. And around the same time, CBC Northern Services um, used to do annual recordings of Northern artists. So they were LPs still at the time. And I don't know if it was the combination of that music video or how we got, I got the call. I was still doing my day job with the federal government. Mm. And I get this call from CBC Radio asking to submit a demo. And um, we ended up with a demo um, submitted to them. And they selected all of the songs, which were actually uh, five Inuktitut poems and one English. And they mm. got selected. And they ended up on this um, LP Northern project. We, they started with the CDs then. Um, ended up on this compilation CD. And... Um, it turned into more songwriting with a producer of that project and Arctic Rose was born and, and then the rest wow. of the career happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that must've been sort of a, a left turn for you. Oh, it was. And it was going left for about five years. It was, <laughs> it was literally going in circles for five years. Cause I, I was loving what was happening, but I really truly had no clue. It was just incredible, but it was also very scary because I felt like yeah. I was constantly uh, catching up to keep up for the first few years. Yeah. Well, so Dreams for You, that came out in 1990. Yeah. That was the one you're talking about, the self-release. That's right. Yeah. And it was a cassette tape, yeah. actually. It was only in cassette yeah. form. Yeah. But the interesting thing when I listen to that, it's really deep and reflective, obviously, beautiful piano. And your voice is super pure, like like the the tone. I, I guess you said you had no training. That was just a natural sort of way of singing. But the strings and the pad in there and your voice. So really what strong. you're I mean, 
Actually, so what you're hearing is a re-recorded version. So the original okay. version um, was done um, uh, by CBC Radio, and it was just your basic um, four instruments, uh, you know, drum, guitar, yeah. um, all of these on that original little cassette tape. Um, okay. that I licensed back from CBC and released on my own. It was after that, and when I signed with EMI, uh, and I decided to re-record Dreams for You for that debut album, uh, This Child. Yeah. Okay, that that explains it. Because because when they said they recorded it on CBC Radio, I was thinking, was it like live? Did you just go in there and play it live, or did they just do a quick sort of recording of it? Right, yeah. No, that's all in studio, and uh, that was a rearranged version uh, and re-recorded version. Yeah. Okay. So the original one was a live one. Uh no, no, no. Um. No. 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 It was. It was a studio. It was. It was a similar thing in a studio with four musicians, and and then go back okay. and do the vocals type thing. Yeah. Interesting. And then, uh, so I guess that the song you had some traditional instruments in there too. The song "Searching" is that. There's a wind instrument in there. That's kind of um. Is that a, an Inuk instrument? <laughs> Actually, that was, uh, I think that was a didgeridoo. What's that? Which is an, Austra an Australian instrument. Oh, cool. Okay. Because it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like a flutish kind of a sound, but it's more guttural. It's, it's deeper, right? And a little raspier. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting because um, in the studio working with Chad uh, on that This Child album, we kind of sat down and we said, okay, so what are traditional Inuit instruments? And mm -hmm. we really didn't have any. We had what we call the qilaut, the drum, which was a caribou hide drum, which we used. There is the mouth harp, but we didn't really have place for the mouth harp quite yet, which was not okay. necessarily traditional to Inuit. Um, but the wind instrument, our percussionist, um, um, Tom Barlow, came in with um, with his all of his... All of his um, his uh, his gadgets, and he started playing with this um, wind sound, and we just okay. Well, that's that's a that's a beautiful sound. So Chad yeah. found a place to use that. Yeah. Oh, good. No, it's cool. It sounds cool. I, but I wanted to ask you about that because the other thing that struck me in in researching for this interview is that how how eclectic everything is. I mean, you've got chants, you've got some different instruments, you take some some stuff from tradition, you've got different languages, you're, you're certainly singing in English, and then and then Inuk, I guess it would be, and even, was there French in there at some point as well? Um, so the other languages in this child are um, two other First Nations languages. Okay. OCM is Coast Salish, mm -hmm. uh, and Hinanaho is Dene. Uh, there is no French, but maybe one of those two might have sounded French. And of course, okay. there's the Inuktitut, which is my traditional language. Right. And then in one of the songs, I can't remember, maybe it was searching, but you're switching, you switch back and forth. Yeah. Into, into Inuktitut, Inuktitut into English. Okay. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So then, uh, so that, that's what struck me is that you're, you're so eclectic and you're bringing all these things together and in, in multi-instruments. And of course you got all the traditional Western instruments as well. Uh, so you've got drums and bass and piano and acoustic guitar, which are all sound great. And then mm. you're trying to blend in the other things. There must've been a lot of conversations around that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, where I knew I was safe um, because the early years um, was a lot of learning. Um, and because 
I, I didn't have any real experience to bring with me into a recording studio. And with that level of musicianship, um, where I knew I was safe to explore and express was when my producer collaborator, Chad Urshik, um, just created this space for us to talk through a lot of things. Like mm-hmm. there was, there was never, and there still isn't, there still isn't any pressure to know, uh, to have expertise. Uh, it was just, what do you want to do? How does this sound? Do you want to try these two together? It's true cool. exploration is yeah. the space that he creates. And um, this child, we had a lot of exploring to do, and we did. And I think that's partly what we sense in the album is there was just no pressure yeah. uh, to know. And we just went ahead and let's try this and let's try this. And it was, I mean, if if there is ever a really great first experience in terms of uh, learning all this in a studio, it definitely was that time creating this child. Oh, cool. Yeah, I know it, it sounds like it. And, and again, it's so eclectic. There's just things from everywhere. So I was trying to put it all together and I was wondering how, you know, it's a recipe, right? It's, it's, it's like cooking the perfect meal. You're taking all these ingredients and putting them, putting them in, in the way that's going to work. And there's no real rules to that. You just kind of figure it out as you go and see what works. So Exactly. And you yeah. hope it, and you hope it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good. it certainly worked out. But the other thing yeah. I was going to ask you about is the chants, because there's some traditional chants. And then what about that? Uh, is it the guttural singing, you know, where the, where the um, mm-hmm. Inuit will sing the mouth singing? What's that about? Um, yeah. So that's called throat singing. Um, okay. Katadjak is uh, oh. the word we use. Uh, and the, I don't throat sing myself. So what okay. we did was for some of that, we either found something that was pre-existing, or um, there was one piece where I reached out to a couple, um, a young, a couple of girls who were uh, very, very good at throat singing back about 20 years ago. And um, I asked them, can you uh, put together several pieces to one, two minutes long, uh, record it and send it to us. And they did. And they, they actually, they went into, uh, uh, they went into the, uh, uh, bathroom at the local airport because the acoustics were the best there. And they just, oh. they just went on and recorded themselves onto some recording device and sent us that version of it. It was, you know, it was that kind of exploration and oh. it was very successful. Super yeah. Cool. Yeah. That, no, that's yeah. neat. I was wondering about that because I thought I, I, I had seen a, a sort of a documentary piece on that before and I thought it was kind of interesting and it, it was a cool sound. And then I thought I heard some of that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't yeah. that neat? And then, so when, when you got through your first in the early nineties, you got signed with EMI. So was that like more, that was more opportunity, but was that more pressure for you too? Like now, now you're gone commercial at that point, right? Now it's like, okay, we need to, to have something we can sell here. You got to do the videos. You've got to do the whole sort of rock star lifestyle. Was that a real change for you and a lot of pressure? Um, it was pressure, but it wasn't pressure, um, in, in that way for me, what it was at that time was, um, not quite convinced that I was a recording artist, that I was a singer-songwriter. You know, Arctic Rose was literally the first time that I had ever done any kind of songwriting. Because if you remember, Mm. the Dreams For You project was uh, poetry. Uh, And and when CBC asked uh, to submit a demo, I literally had to honestly say okay i'm 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 not a singer songwriter i don't know how how or where you think i am but 
I know three chords on the guitar um, and let me put something together for you. And that was the extent of my quote unquote experience. So this child and those early years was um, the pressure there was more self-imposed in that I, I wasn't convinced I was a singer songwriter that mm. I could, okay. I could, I could swim among these, these folks that I belonged in this company. Um, and so it was a self-imposed pressure in that way. Um, and then I guess the more you, you find yourself, um, settling in it's not even that it's just the more I was there the more I knew wait I'm an artist I want to do this Um, and that was starting to happen between this child and the follow-up album Unsung Heroes right and and but Arctic Rose was earlier right that was 1992 that Uh, Arctic Rose yeah uh, came out in 1992 uh, but we started that one late 1990 early 1991 I was still working my day jobs um, and going into the studio when the money was there or the time was there yeah the reason I ask about about the record deal because like when you did Arctic Rose you did Song of the Land and still running and and you're you're doing things from your personal experience You're, you're sort of writing stuff that matters to you but then once you get the record deal it becomes more commercialized so there's always that sort of mixture of okay I'm an artist I'm a poet I want to say things that matter to me and that matter to my people and then on the other side of it you got the record company saying well yes but we need to sell records you know so there's a commercial aspect to it so how did you blend those two things um I I guess the 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 pressure uh really kicked in after this child Mm -hmm. so i because i didn't have a track record per se uh, arctic rose was uh in my mind at that time um you know that uh bucket list project Uh, i got in a studio i got to record songs and now i can move on with my life okay um and then when um record labels started inquiring initially i just i wasn't convinced and so at first i just turned down meetings Hmm. Um, and then when we did meet and we met with EMI and we decided let's give it a try, neither the label or myself as an artist, uh, again, was convinced uh, really that anything might come from this. We didn't know. Okay. So there was no commercial pressure whatsoever uh, in and around the writing and recording of this child where it kicked in was when when very quickly OCM became a charting song and became a hit song. And then Hinana Ho, uh, which was the second yeah. single back in 95, started charting as well when it was released and then breaking down and so on. And so the next album is where the commercial pressure kicked in and I the machine you. kicked in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that, and that, so a lot of things yeah. changed. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so just to backtrack one second, then in 1993, you released a Christmas album, right? Yeah. But that was before the EMI deal? That's right. Yeah. So uh, Arctic Rose and the Christmas album were um, independent projects. Okay. I got you. I was was wondering about that because usually people who are sort of well into their career and the record company says, hey, why don't you do a Christmas album? And they go, yeah, sure. You know, so Mariah Carey, everybody does one, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. done one. But it usually comes later rather than earlier. So I wanted to ask you about that because you did it early. 
We did it early, and I think the the uh, the project was more because um, we were in the studio, the musicians were there, and uh, we were coming up to I think it was uh, early fall of ninety, I believe it was ninety two, ninety one or ninety two, and um, there's actually quite a lot of really um, easy listening and fun to perform translated into Inuktitut. Christmas songs. <laughs> That's yeah. a long, long yeah. description, but yeah. yeah, it just it just made sense for us. So, well, we're here. Let's record some Christmas songs. Okay. Um, and we ended up with a Christmas project around the time that we were recording Arctic Rose. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And, and part of the reason why I ask you that is because, again, it's it's difficult sometimes to categorize music, and so the Christmas stuff throws in another sort of fly in the ointment, if you will, just because it's a different way to categorize your music. This is a Christmas album, but how were you categorized? Like it's indigenous and Inuit, adult contemporary, Canadiana, folk, country. Like I saw so many different descriptions of your music. Um, I guess in the early, the first two projects before this child, um, I don't know. I think we were mostly just um, Canadiana folk. Mm-hmm. You know, there there were there really wasn't a category. Um, we we were just discovering things, so we didn't really we weren't we, there was no conscious decision or effort to be a certain sound. Just let's get in there and let's see let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, so Arctic Rose and. To a degree, the Christmas album too was more of a kind of a folky sound, and then this child, which is a bit folky, but also world beat. That's what I loved about this child and that experience was we yeah. went in there and we just explored all kinds of things, um, and it it kind of became a more pronounced, uh, specific uh, genre, if you will, world mm-hmm. beat and and um, percussive sounds. So, yeah. whereas the Christmas album and Arctic Rose were kind of country, kind of folky. Right. Well, because when OCM came out, like that was everywhere. I mean, everybody heard that song. Everyone mm-hmm. knew it. I was a professional musician at the time myself. And we knew it as this is an Inuit artist, but just a great song, you know, and, and really a strong hook and the We Are Family part and it just really strong. So so I didn't want to categorize it as far as that goes. Like, to me, it was a pop song by an Inuit artist. That's the way I sort of reflected on it. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of what we did with this child was let's let's see what happens. Let's put it out there and see what happens. And there was no pressure to be a sound or 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 to be commercial. It was just "Hmm, let's see what happens with this project. So yeah. it was a nice surprise all around. Oh, cool. And then Hina Naho, we, I remember having discussions with people who were trying to figure out how to sing it and how, what mm. it was. Cause so what is that? What does that mean? Um, so Hina Naho is Dene. Um, originally, my, my first, the first time I heard this was a John Landry, who is one of the authors of it. Um, okay. And it's a drum song. And what that means is the Dene um, used the, the Hina Naho drum song as a celebration and ceremony around the end of winter and spring and summer um, is, is coming. Okay. And they're not words, it's a chant. So Hina and Aho mm-hmm. are not words, it's a chant. Uh, right. And it's a celebration around um, the changing of seasons. Okay, cool. And then, of course, you, again, you're mixing a traditional sort of chant with uh, contemporary instruments. There's guitar. It starts with a guitar riff, I think, right? Yep. 
you know, heard that lots as well. So, so you just have this, this sort of interesting blend of everything. I mean, it's, it's almost like you, there's, like you said, there's no real parameters. You pick some drums that were they traditional, um, Inuit drums that you were using or. Um, so yeah, so part, there were parts where, um, and this is the brilliance behind chatter chicken. When we were doing this child, we had Claude Desjardins, uh, a Métis percussionist, uh, come in and do a lot of the extra sounds. And he borrowed that traditional Inuit drum, the Kilaut, to, okay. to build a bigger boom, bottom boom sound. And so he put that in parts of those songs. And so you hear that, but he's a, he's a percussionist, so he put a lot of other instruments in there as well. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering, because I, I listened to the song, is it Shamaya? Yeah. I really like that. That's a very cool tune. It's got the in, intro, uh, acoustic guitar intro, and but the drums sound like, it sounds like congas in there. And I was wondering, was that native drums or congas? Because that's what it sounded like to me. Right. Yeah, it was um, a little bit of everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Many thanks to Susan Aglukar for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her incredible experiences in the music business and in life. More information is available on Facebook, Susan Aglukar, and also SusanAglukar.com. Nice website full of lots of information. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.